Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Okay, here we go now with Canada's highest paid CEOs. These guys make more money in a couple of days than most people make all year long the new list of the masters of the universe here is out it is compiled by the canadian center for policy alternatives very pleased to welcome their senior economist david mcdonald david thanks for coming on today sure thing thanks for having me okay so this is the top 100 ceos in the country the the highest paid break down some of these numbers here how much are these guys breaking in yeah, so on average this year, this is a new, new all-time high. Um, the, the average CEO here is making 14.3 million uh, in 2021. Uh, this bested the previous record of uh, of 12 million that was set in 2018. Um, what that means is that by 9:43 a.m. yesterday, uh, these top CEOs had already made uh, what the average worker is going to make over the next 52 weeks, um, which is just under $60,000. Um, and this the, this gap between what these top CEOs make and what the average worker makes has been growing pretty regularly over time. The ratio this year is 243 times, so they make 243 times what the average worker makes. Uh, but this is something that's been increasing pretty steadily since the 1980s. And that number is going up? Like these uh, these wages are record high now? Yeah, so the CEO wages are, are at record highs, and uh, you know, and if we take a look at just the you know just the last year, most people are going to be well aware inflation was pretty pretty tough on workers. Yeah. Uh, workers saw a two percent pay cut after inflation in 2021, but these CEOs saw a 26 percent pay increase even mm-hmm. after we include inflation, and inflation is uh, you know is affecting. You know, workers versus CEOs very differently for specific reasons. I mean, for average workers, it just, you know, eats into their ability to buy food and groceries. But for the top CEOs, uh, inflation has been great. Um, And the reason why is it's been a historic uh, opportunity for the corporate sector to increase prices. That's, of course, what inflation is, increasing prices. And because they've increased prices, they managed to increase their profit margins. And so as a result, Corporate profits as a percentage of the size of our economy is at all-time highs. We've never seen this level of corporate profits, um, you know, suck up this much out of our out of our economy. Now, CEOs are paid very differently than workers. Uh, they they would often make a salary, but it's a small part of their overall pay. Most of their pay comes in the form of bonuses linked to things like corporate profitability, revenue, share price, that sort of thing. And so, okay. when corporate profits go through the roof, compensation goes through the roof. And so in that sense, inflation is great for CEO pay because it's driving corporate profits. Okay, let's talk about some of the CEOs on your list here, David. So number one, highest paid CEO in Canada, Philip Fair, CEO of Nuve. Tell me about what what does this company do here, Nuve? Yeah, it's it's a it's an online payments company. Um, and so it's, it's actually relatively new. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is the highest one on the list, and there's a huge gap between uh, um, Fair and the, and the next CEO. I mean, the, Fair got 141 million. Uh, that's not actually the highest we've we've recorded in the previous couple of years. It's actually, the third highest that we've that we've recorded. Yeah. Um, and so, 
you know, this, this is going to, this one guy alone is going to bring the average up a little bit on his own. We actually also track the minimum wage that you need to, to get on this list in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and the minimum wage is, is also going up, you know, even, even as the average is going up. Okay, so when I'm looking at this list, and these guys are obviously raking in like mind-boggling amounts of money. On the other hand, do they not deserve it? Like, if you take a look at this company, the number one guy on your list, Philip Fair, this company, Nuve, is a global payments technology company headquartered in Montreal. This guy is the founder. He founded this company. Total equity, U.S. $2 billion here. Net income, $107 million last year even though it was maybe arguably a tough year. So this guy has got a very successful company that's making a ton of money. Should he not be making a lot of money? He founded this company. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly CEOs should be making more than the average worker. I don't think there's any debate there. I mean, the issue is more that the gap uh, is is shifting pretty radically and pretty quickly. Uh, so, you know, in the 60s and 70s, also CEOs made more than the average worker, uh, but it was 20 or 30 times more. Um, and so once we get to the, the 90s, it's 100 times more. You know, once we get to the 2000s, it's 150 times more. And now we're closing in on 250 times more. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it's not so much that they get paid more. That's, that's I think, pretty understandable. It's just that that, that, that gap uh, is growing. And so, you know, as these companies do well, um, you know, it's the CEO certainly does better, uh, but the average workers are not keeping pace right. with that. But okay, we take a look down the list a little further. So let's go to number two on the list, Patrick Dovigi, who is the president of GFL Environmental Inc., which is a waste management company. He made forty-three million as the CEO. You know, I mean, these are stratospheric numbers that people can only dream about, I guess, in real life. But again, I mean, you look at this company; you know, the, the revenue is one point eight three billion bucks. You know, obviously the guy's going to make a, a ton of money when you're running a successful company. But you're saying what? You're not begrudging them making a lot of money. You're just saying they're making too much. Yeah, and that the gap is growing, right? And so, you know, yeah. you can't you can't run these companies without the workers also, right? I mean, it's not just the CEO on their own, off kind of doing their own thing. I mean, obviously there's a big group of workers that are running like a waste management company, right? Picking up garbage. Um, you know, and so the issue is, okay, so this company does really well. They do a lot of sales and, you know, picking up garbage. Uh, and dealing with waste, uh, you know, who benefits from that? You know, is it just the CEO at the very top? I mean, you know, the company's not possible without workers. The other thing I think that's worth pointing out when we take a look at these these uh, pay packages is what's what's really actually driving the gap between um, these top CEOs and the average worker isn't so much the salary, I mean, it makes up a part of their pay, but it's really the, the bonus structure that's driving it. Um, and these bonuses have really become a, a pay-for-luck scheme, uh, but only good luck. You know, bad luck is excluded. Um, and so in 2020, half of the top CEOs on the list uh, got direct federal government support, or they just changed how their bonuses were paid to insulate them from, you know, the bad well, luck. Uh, well, and then in it, the good is luck it bad, years... Is it, like, is it, hang on, though. Is it good luck or is it smart business management? I mean, when you take a look at this guy at the top of the list, this Nuve company, a global payments company based in Montreal... I mean, are you telling me that it's just good luck that this company has been so successful? How How is that possibly be, be just good luck? I mean, obviously, they have customers that must be happy with their service. Oh, yeah. Insofar as you get uh, big outside events that, that 
drive stock market prices and drive profits, the CEOs just benefit, not because of necessarily anything that they did. Uh, and so, in, you know, in 2021, you've got this inflationary surge, which drives up corporate profits, and everybody gets huge bonuses. I mean, they didn't cause the inflationary surge per se, um, but they but they see big benefits as a result of it. Oh, okay. And so you get so so bottom bottom line, David here for me. You believe there should be a, a higher tax on these top wage earners, right? Like you believe there should be some sort of wealth tax, windfall tax, excessive profit tax. Is that what you're calling for? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on the one side, I don't think they des- I don't think they need tax loopholes. Uh, you know, we don't need to we don't need to subsidize these extreme pay packages, and we continue to. I mean, there are specialized you know, tax loopholes that only apply basically to the types of, of pay that CEOs make. Uh, but then on the other side, uh, you know, when we look at, okay, how are we going to rebuild our healthcare system after the pandemic? There's all these shortages. We can't get operating rooms running. Uh, or how do we set higher standards in long-term care and kind of fund those higher standards? These pay-for-luck schemes seem like, you know, good opportunity to raise some funds and put it to some useful uh, purpose. So you could do that through wealth tax. Uh, you could do it through higher top marginal tax rates. Uh, you know, we saw that introduced in 2016, for instance. Um, but, you know, these are ways to recycle this, this uh, you know, this concentrated extreme payment schemes uh, and do something good with them. Okay, it's a fascinating list. It's got everyone talking in Canada. David, thank you for your time today and thanks for coming on. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Okay, we continue talking about CEO salaries. You heard my conversation there with David McDonald, the top CEOs in Canada, average salary fourteen million. He says bring the tax hammer down on these guys. Lots of calls coming in. Quickly check in with Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for coming on. Do you think these guys deserve that much money as these top CEOs? Well, it depends. It's not so easy just to say that all CEOs don't deserve what they're making. It's not that easy. Now, your last guest, he breezed over the real issue. He said a significant amount of these CEOs were receiving federal support. Now, what does that really mean? It means the federal government has been handing big corporations buckets of taxpayers' money. $295 million the federal government announced to the Ford Motor Company. $420 million of taxpayers' money announced to Algoma Steel. You hear Loblaws in the news lately. $12 million for law yeah. laws. Now, yeah. the guest wants people to think that a new tax is just going to be hit by the wealthy. These guys aren't going to feel that new tax. That's the oldest political trick in the oldest political book. That was what was sold to Canadians back in 1917 when they brought in the income tax to pay World <laughs> War I debts, right? Yeah. Only very few Canadians paid the income tax back then. Now, who's paying the income tax now? Well, your listeners, the people in the shop, the people driving to work, that's who ends up paying these new taxes when you give government a new hammer. Okay, let's take some calls here. Sean on the line in New West. Hi, Sean, go ahead. Hey, Michael, do you remember about 10 years ago when BC Hydro was able to defer their debts so that the CEOs could collect their bonuses? That reminds me of that. Okay. Where I'm more worried about... I don't know if BC Hydro and our corp or our government-run companies can still do that, but I'm more worried about them doing something like that than a private corporation. Okay, thank you for the call. I don't know. Well, you know, a lot of the companies on this list look like private corporations. Frank, can I jump in on that? Because yeah. look what our government crown corporations are doing. The Bank of Canada, one job to control inflation, absolutely failed, still gave its central bankers $45 million in bonuses and raises. 
Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, supposed to keep housing prices low, absolutely failed in 2020, 2021. People can't, couldn't afford a new home. Nearly $60 million in raises and bonuses. The CBC, wow. another crown corporation that gobbles up $1.2 billion from taxpayers every single year. Say what you will about the CBC. That's for each of your listeners to decide. But they gave mm. themselves $51 million in bonuses and raises during the pandemic and are still asking the government for mm. more money. Right? It's these crown corporations that continue to hand out bonuses and raises. The government isn't going to fix inequality. The government's creating the inequality. Let's go to back to the phone lines. Brad in Vancouver. Hi, Brad. Go ahead. Hey, I'm on the side of the CEOs now. When it comes to crown corporations, I think we got we definitely got to bring the hammer down on them, right? But uh, with private, like I know, like well, okay, if you raise the taxes on these guys, um, you know they can afford to move their money elsewhere, right? Like I know France, they used to have a wealth tax and then they scrapped it. Macron came out. You know, a few years ago, saying how it was a bad idea, it really affected the economy of France, right? Okay, that's an interesting point. Like, you know, the guy at the top of the CEO list, Franco, is running an online payment company, I think doing business with, uh, I think, online gambling companies, too, as part of the equation here and their their success there. I mean, you know, that that could easily be, be moved all offshore, couldn't it? Well, that's a, I'm so glad your listener said that. The French said au revoir to its wealth tax in 2017 because these high wealth taxes chased away thousands of residents and billions of dollars in assets. Now, Mm. economists are all warning that we might be stumbling into a recession. Is that really what we want to do? Give the government more taxes to chase away more assets and to chase away more Canadians? We should be doing the opposite. We should say, come and invest in Canada. Create jobs. Bruce in Surrey. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. I, I tend to agree. I don't think a blanket tax is the answer. I think you have to look at these corporations individually. I wanted to point out that I have just retired from TELUS after 32 years, and the CEO there, who I'm sure is on your list, makes about $19 million a year, Mr. Entwistle. But the way he's accomplished that is to lower the wages and the benefits of the frontline workers. A lot of that was done through contracting out. A lot of it was done by shipping thousands of jobs out of this country if you phone in to tell us now you're talking to somebody in the philippines or manila or god knows where those so he so decent, he cut he cut it decent those were decent family supporting jobs that right. is shipped out of the country so do you therefore think they should raise the taxes on the on the guy at the top i don't think raising the taxes is the answer yeah. i think they hmm. should stop tell us because they have a monopoly or at least an oligopoly I think they should stop them from shipping decent jobs out of this country. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with our great debate today. Are Canadians downright angry with the Justin Trudeau government? Are Canadians angry about the state of our country right now? Have a listen to Pierre Polyev here, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. He was asked about rage and anger in the country he asked he was asked about those f trudeau flags that some people fly at protests listen to his answer here i don't like the flags um and i don't like rage but i think we have to ask ourselves why are people so angry like why are people so angry and the answer is that they're hurting 
Okay, let's discuss this now. What a great panel we've got for you. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre. Very pleased to welcome him back. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Same to you. Also on the line, Andrew Scheer, Conservative MP in Regina. Of course, the former leader of the Conservative Party. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me as well. You bet. Thank you, gentlemen, to both of you. Andrew Scheer, let me go to you first. Do you agree with your party leader there, Pierre Polyev? People are angry in Canada right now. Well, I think he hit the nail on the head that there's a lot of hurt and uh, people are suffering under the highest inflation in 40 years because of Justin Trudeau's deficits and inflationary spending. Uh, People are upset at the way that Justin Trudeau has demonized Canadians who disagree with him. Uh, I really like uh, Pierre's message about turning that hurt into hope. Uh, it's incumbent of, uh, upon members of parties from all over the spectrum to offer positive solutions to make Canadians' lives better. Uh, and that's precisely what uh, Pierre has been doing since he's become leader of our party. Randeep Sarai, what do you say to that? Oh, well, I totally agree. I first want to say hi to Andrew. Uh, actually, under Andrew, I didn't see this rage. I didn't see this type of decorum. I thought it was a much better uh, conservative party that we witnessed under there. Uh, uh, what you're seeing now is rage. You're seeing hockey dads uh, uh, waving these flags. Uh, a, a leader should denounce this. A leader has a op- uh, responsibility as a civil leader, uh, just as other leaders denounce when anybody uh, took rage out or said horrific things about uh, Pierre Polyev's wife or what the uh, the person said about her. It was a rage then, uh, and it was denounced. It was denounced well, didn't, at the utmost level. Well, didn't he uh, dena- didn't he can didn't he denounce it? I mean, he said there he doesn't well, he, like he, he doesn't like the flags. He doesn't like rage. But he, uh, he instead of stoking it by saying, you know, understand where the anger is. The people have always had differences with governments. People always have had uh, uh, issues with different political sides. And there's a proper format for it. And I think leaders have a civil responsibility to uh, uphold that decorum and denounce uh, uh, attitudes and others. And I think Pierre has been always. Uh, slow on this, always the last to denounce it, and even the, most of the times not really denounce it, uh, just kind of uh, uh, pussyfoot around it. Uh, and I think he's got to be more direct. I think people expect that from okay. our leaders. Uh, people expect that from our teachers. Andrew, sure. Yeah, with all due respect to my colleague, who, who I respect, you know, he sits in a party led by Justin Trudeau, who is 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 sometimes rage personified you know remember when justin trudeau called all canadians who disagreed with his policies uh around covid vaccinations or 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 shutdowns he called them white supremacists and misogynists uh remember when he kicked out a member of his own caucus for standing up to his corruption remember when he bullied a black female member of parliament because she he didn't like the way uh that she wasn't going along with 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 his orders like this is coming right from the leadership of the liberal parties uh, party and the liberal members are saying well you know the conservatives aren't reacting to the rage in the right way well we have to look at what's causing it I, i know the liberals would love to have a conversation about how some canadians react to trudeau's policies but we've got to focus on what the government is doing to create so much uh, hurt and anger. Okay. Uh, Randeep, what do you say to that? Do you think Trudeau has stoked divisions in the country too? Not at all. I think what he was referring to was the (laughs) actual protesters that were outside, that were misogynists, that were saying those things. Now we're finding out that Pierre Polyev has had misogynist uh, codes embedded in his YouTube channel for six years, which supposedly he 
he now claims he had no idea about. But after winning leadership, it's okay to denounce it. But during it, he kept it on the whole time. Uh, I mean, this is the double standard. They hold Candace Bergen, uh, the interim leader, uh, in private conversations with the prime minister's office, official conversation, saying, no, we should not meet the uh, convoy organizers. We should not go out. But in public, going that's, out and meeting them and saying we should. That's, Those are two different that's things. Just that's come out. That's so just not true. That's not true. Hypocrisy that's, that's, that the leadership has shown from the Conservative okay. Party. Okay, hang on. Go ahead, Andrew Scheer. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 was just a complete fabrication that, that that just was not true. It's important for your listeners to know that what they just heard just did not happen. And, you know, uh, the, the Liberals have tried to paint everybody who disagrees with Justin Trudeau with the same broad brush. I don't believe that, that my colleague who's on this show with me right now is a racist just because his leader, Justin Trudeau, performed racist acts so often that he lost count of how often he did it. He put on blackface so many times, he can't remember. And I don't assume that every Liberal member of, par- of Parliament is a racist just because their leader did something so racist. I don't believe that everybody that works at the CBC, for example, is a racist just because uh, they've been accused of having systemic racist policies. Individuals who perform uh, heinous acts or, or say hateful things need to be held accountable for that. But Justin Trudeau went on television and said, should we even tolerate these people? And the, these people he was referring to were people who had concerns about a medical decision for whatever reason. And that's the type of language that Justin Trudeau used, painting everybody who is upset with what he's doing, with, with the inflation that people are experiencing, with the out-of-work energy sector, men and women, with, uh, with, with, with you name it, the, the things that people are upset with. Instead of having a conversation about their reaction to it, we should be having conversations. Why is this government doing so many things that are hurting so many people? Randip Sarai, brief reply, and then I want to play another clip here, Justin Trudeau, for Andrew Shear's thoughts. Randip Sarai, go ahead. Look, the, the, the people that, that they were referring to, the ones that came out, they were not referring to inflation. They were not referring to a just transition. They were not referring to an oil sector that needed to go through transition. They were raging about something when they got there. Turned out wasn't even a Canadian problem. It was crossing a border, being unvaccinated, which is an American rule at the time. Uh, they shifted and changed as they went. And, and unfortunately, the leadership at the Conservative Party fueled that, fueled that in the wrong way, which now we've seen under the Emergency Act was uh, a very... Very, very dangerous sticking uh, uh, no, no. time with people uh, taking anger out and even attempts of okay. violent, uh, violent ways. So I think uh, uh, denouncing that at the outmost and beginning uh, is, is, is an important thing because it wasn't a protest. It was an occupation and an occupation to overthrow okay. the government. Hey, We've seen it in the U.S. We've seen it here. Can I just, I just, I just got to take, take issue with that. I'm a member of parliament, as, as are you. I was able to move through every single building on parliament hill i could move around that entire downtown with no problem there is no building that was occupied you liberals keep using this word there no buildings were occupied at all you're desperately trying to import american style uh political issues trying to equate this with what happened uh, in washington it is just false okay there's a reason why canadians are losing trust in your governments because you, you just cannot tell the truth let me play another clip here. Speaking to Liberal MP Randeep Sarai, Conservative MP Andrew Scheer. This is a clip of Justin Trudeau. Andrew, I'd like to get your thoughts on. Recently, Pierre Polyev, the Conservative Party leader, has been talking about how everything in Canada seems broken. That's the word he was using. Is Canada broken right now? Listen to Trudeau's response here to Pierre Polyev, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Trudeau. When he says that Canada is broken... 
That's where we draw the line. This is Canada. I don't accept Canadians and politicians that talk down our country. Okay, is that what Pierre Polyev is doing right now, Andrew Scheer, talking down the country, talking down Canada when he talks about the country being broken? Your thoughts? Uh, he's, he's identifying a problem. You know, when you go to see a doctor and the doctor says, okay, you're, you've got these symptoms and this is what's causing it, he's not talking you down. He's, he's identifying what needs to be fixed. We've got a system in Canada, we've got a government in Canada that has caused 40-year high inflation with their massive deficits, and they're making the problem worse. We've got a government in Canada that can't get a passport issued to Canadians on time. I've got constituents who have had to miss vacations and weddings and funerals because they applied for passports six months from now. We've got systems in Canada that are breaking down. Holiday travel is a nightmare for thousands and thousands of Canadians. Uh, you know, we, we've got uh, 1.5 million Canadians visiting food banks. We've got veterans being told that they should consider ending their life with assisted suicide rather than fighting for the benefits that they're entitled to. We've got students that are, are making the tough decision between paying next semester's tuition or their rent. This is not the country that we expected to, 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 to grow up in. I'm, I'm 43 years old. I never expected I would see the day in a G7 country, in major cities, with people who are making you know, good, making decent money, being forced to use food banks because all of a sudden they can't afford groceries because of Trudeau's deficits. Okay. So when Pierre Paul, when Pierre Paul observes the problems and the hurt that Canadians are, are feeling, it's so typical. Instead of liberals to listen to that and say, okay, we're going to address these issues, they just start to, to name call and, and make partisan attacks. Randip Sarai, what do you say to that? Look, we're facing a global inflation problem. The whole world is facing it. In fact, in that, Canada has one of the lowest inflation rates, whether you look at the G7 or G20, our neighbours across uh, the 49th parallel are a percent more. In, in Europe, England uh, is 3% more than Canada. This is a global phenomenon, not just Canada. And we're actually weathering it way better. So you compare it to others, and you'll see we're doing phenomenally much better. During COVID, our death rate was phenomenally lower, exponentially lower than our neighbors to the south, even our neighbors in Europe. We've done a phenomenal job. Yes, you're out of luck. You're supposed to tweak things to make them better, but Canadians are doing better. We are having a struggle during uh, this current time, which the whole world is is dealing with. And you got to work as a team and an opposition has a responsibility to bring new ideas, not say fire the Bank of Canada uh, president, uh, governor, uh, uh, let's uh, change a new uh, monetization system to cryptocurrency. These aren't the answers. The answers are supposed to be those are constructive ways of how are we going to fight this deficit? How are we going to fight this inflation? How are we going to better supply chains? Which is what we're doing. Let me play another clip here from Pierre Polyev, guys, and get your thoughts to it. So here's Pierre Polyev speaking the other day about the situation in Canada right now, and we'll get your thoughts. Here it is. I have never seen so much hurt and so much pain and suffering in our population in my nearly two decades in politics. So yes, of course, we should tell people to be more civil and to reject offensive signs, flags, and language. But we should also ask ourselves, why are people hurting so badly? Okay, so he did, you know, reject. He said we should reject the F. Trudeau signs and flags around it. But you, you still think he doesn't go far enough. 
Yeah, I think he doesn't go far enough. I think when he went out and, and approached those same people that had those flags, uh, including Confederate flags and others out there, that was no, not a good not sign true. to do that. You need to be a leader that stands up and does not accept this. And that decorum filters all the way down. Look at the Andrew. amount of anti-Asian hate that has come mm. out right here in Vancouver. What do people expect? If you read all the experts, they expect you to stand up next to the person being bullied or victimized. Quick That's response, and Not the opposite yeah. to say, oh, Oh, let's understand why he's angry. That's why he's uh, uh, slurring explicit at this woman. Quick you response, need to be Andrew. The opposite and put your leadership on top. Go ahead, Andrew. First of all, what, what my colleague said about inflation is factually incorrect. The fact that other cu- countries made even worse decisions and are having worse inflation gives us no cold comfort when a million and a half Canadians are visiting a food bank. Inflation is not a global phenomenon, it's not like the weather. It is entirely a monetary policy issue. It's because the Bank of Canada printed $400 billion of new money to underwrite Trudeau's deficits. That's why Canadians are watching their savings erode, watching grocery spike uh, prices go through the roof, and making okay. horrific decisions like whether or not they can afford their medication next month. So that's what we should be talking about, not whether or not, in the opinion of a Liberal MP, Pierre Polly have used the right words in denouncing something that we all agree is vulgar. Thank you, gentlemen, for a good discussion. I know we could fill the whole show here and keep going. We're out of time. I want to thank both of you for your time, though. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP. Andrew Scheer, Conservative MP. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Canada's bail system here now and whether it's working adequately to protect the public. There are growing concerns about the bail system in our country including here in British Columbia, where the B.C. government has talked about their concerns, especially over violent repeat offenders uh, being released while they await a trial on charges. We've seen many, many tragic examples here of offenders who are out on bail being involved in some deadly incidents. Probably the most recent one here is totally heartbreaking, the shooting death of an Ontario police officer, Constable Greg Pirshala, who was shot and killed on December 27th. And two of the two people charged with first-degree murder in this case, uh, one of whom uh, had a lifetime ban from for possessing firearms, and there was a warrant out for his arrest on previous firearm-related charges at the time of the shooting. Why was he out? Why was he free? Have a listen to Thomas Karik here, who is the commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police. Have a listen. And was provided the opportunity to take the life of an innocent officer. And I know that there's a lot of interest in ensuring to see that changes are made to ensure where possible people who are charged with violent offenses that are firearms related are not in those positions moving forward. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Cash Heed, former West Vancouver Police Chief, former Solicitor General of British Columbia. He's now a Richmond City Councillor, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Okay, when we take a look at the bail system, we've talked a lot about this. There's growing concern about it in Canada. What do you think about it? Is it broken? 
Absolutely broken. And let me tell you why. I think this is a symptom of a broader problem of all the structural changes and issues that come up within our our entire criminal justice system. You talked about the uh, unfortunate death of the OPP officer. Remember the death of the RCMP officer just recently in Burnaby. The murder rampage in Saskatchewan where 12 people were killed. The chronic offenders that are out there causing harm and creating public safety concerns on our street. We're not dealing with it. When the federal government tried to modernize this, I believe it was in 2019, it was a failure from the start. So although we have the administration of justice within the provincial jurisdiction, there are things that we can do, and there's things that we can do federally, like the commissioner of the OPP is saying. Okay, the bail system as it's structured right now, judges are supposed to keep people locked up if they represent a danger to the public, right? So are the judges not following the guidelines? Well, let's just define that a little bit more, because a charter right gives you the right to bail unless there's a compelling reason to lock you up. Now, the police and the prosecutors have to make the case against granting bail. The reverse onus is on, for example, if there's, uh, I believe, domestic violence and a murder charge. So it's up to the police and the prosecutors to make their case in front of the judge so the judge can make his or her decision. But if his or her are just going strictly by, uh, you know, the, the concepts that's in place, not in the administration of justice and granting parole to dangerous offenders, if that's the way the system is, we need to fix the system. These policymakers need to come out and change the system because these violent offenders that are causing harm in society, yes, they're minimal, but however, the harm they cause is significant. We have to deal with it. The, the federal government had recently introduced what had been known as a, a principle of restraint for police in the courts for the granting of bail to ensure that people would have earliest opportunity for release rather than being kept in custody. This is a, a goal to modernize and streamline the bail regime. There are concerns that Indigenous p- people are disproportionately impacted by the bail system. You know, that's the judges, though, are still supposed to have the power to keep people behind bars if they're a danger. All right. That hasn't changed. No, and it right? should never, never change. The, the problem here, Mike, I think we're putting the financial part ahead of the safety part. And this is part of the outcry that needs to take place because the release of offenders, it's, it's a lot more efficient for the criminal justice system financially to have them out in the public than it is to lock them up in jail. Mike, I've long said that we're locking up the wrong people in jail. We need to lock up the right people in jail. So even if you look at the Lepard report that talks about the chronic offenders that are out there each and every day and night causing harm in society, or you talk about these people that are leading to these heinous crimes of murdering our police officers, it does not matter. If the system is broken, it needs to be fixed. And we have to look at that. And I don't think the policymakers slash the politicians will actually react to it unless there is a groundswell of public outcry uh, by the uh, people that elected them. Yeah. And speaking of that, I mean, we have a B.C. government in place right now that has expressed their concerns over the situation. We've got the mayors of the largest cities of British Columbia. I've said they're worried about this. They don't want to see the, these type of repeat offenders continually released into the public. What is it going to take 
to achieve some reforms and changes in this regard, do you think? Well, what they have to do is stop finger pointing. If you notice the province and, you know, all the respect I have for Murray Rankin uh, and, and David Eby, they're pointing the fingers at the province when, in fact, the administration justice, like they did with repeat offenders, they can put that uh, uh, order in place for Crown prosecutors, for judges here in British Columbia to deal with it in a specific way. We can't keep pointing the fingers. So it's going to take uh, them to realize that they have a job to do. They have to stop pointing the fingers. Even when you come down to these police leaders, and it was good to see the OPP out here, but where, where do we hear from our other police leaders? Where do we hear from the police leaders here in British Columbia? Where do we hear from them in Vancouver, where, in fact, we're dealing with a, a tragic situation in the downtown east side of Vancouver? Where do you hear from the, uh, the head of the uh, RCMP in Canada? Those are influential people that need to get out of their political paradigm and start talking about what's needed to ensure the safety of our citizens and to deal with not only the crime but the fear of crime in our communities. The, the violent criminals and violent repeat offenders are certainly, I think, the most highest level of concern here. But then you've got these extraordinary cases of whether it's shoplifting, theft, of people who rack up like unbelievable rap sheets in the next segment here cash we're going to be talking about this guy who was uh caught allegedly stealing a forty thousand dollars worth of art from a gallery on south granville street police when they saw the security video they just went to his house to arrest him because they recognized him right away he's got 115 convictions on it on his record what do you do about a guy like that maybe not necessarily violent offenses but when you rack up 115 offenses what do you do with a guy like that and that's over two decades but however it is very significant you lock them up there's no de- the problem is mike there's no deterrent for people that are committing crime. Yes, we use the excuse of severe addiction. Yes, we need to deal with that in a different fashion. Yes, we use the excuse of mental health issues. Yes, we need to deal with that by incapacitating some of those people. But appears this individual, there was nothing but him being a chronic repeat offender. So those are the people that we need to have significant consequences to so they can stop their behavior. Classical punishment is not working, so we gotta start looking at it. Do we take these people and incapacitate them from society so they're not out there causing harm to this particular business in such a profound way. Those are the discussions we have to have, Mike, but we don't have those discussions unless it's with journalists like yourself or others that are raising these particular issues so your listeners can understand what is going on. Where do you stand on the idea of reopening Riverview or another institution like it for people who are on the street, chronic, chronic offenders who are clearly mentally ill, addicted to drugs or both? Should there be some sort of involuntary care or treatment or someone for someone in an institution rather than leaving them on the street to continually commit crimes? I'm absolutely in favor of it, and let me just explain why I'm in favor of it. When we deinstitutionalized the mental ill from Riverview and Woodlands and that, we were supposed to take the supports and bring them out to the community where they were going to reside. That never, ever happened. Now they're out there, and we're dealing with the consequences of governments denying that particular policy for a period of time. We've got to look at institutionalizing these people. We've got to look at not only the mentally ill, but the the drug, severely drug addicted 
looking at different ways of dealing with it because the traditional way has been an ongoing failure. Okay, we continue to follow it closely. Cash, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thank you, Mike. All right, we've talked a lot on the show about the surge in shoplifting. I've spoken to store owners on the show who say that it's just getting worse than they've ever seen before. People who come into their store and just steal stuff every single day. We've seen stats as well about the surge in violent shoplifting incidents too. Now, here's another one. Check this one out at the uh, Fine Art Gallery on South Granville Street. You had two pieces of sculptures, two sculptures worth over $40,000 stolen on successive days here. It's Steve Addison standing by from the VPD. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Grace Key. You will also hear the voice here of Dror Darrell, who is the owner of Vancouver Fine Art Gallery on Granville. Have a listen to this. The $30,000 piece was right here. And then the other one was right here. Security video shows a man walking out with a sculpture on Friday. The next day, a man walks out with another piece. This time, he's in and out in four seconds. This guy's got balls, you know. Dror briefly followed the man and called 911. Within seconds or minutes, literally, we had the police in here. Okay, <laughs> this guy's got balls. He's stealing these uh, sculptures here two days in a row out of this store. The police made an arrest here very quickly. Let's check in with Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Steve, thank you for coming on. No problem, Mike. Okay, let's talk about this case. They had good, really good surveillance video here, right? Yeah, this one's getting a lot of attention, not just because of the brazenness of a guy who walked in and out uh, two days in a row stealing expensive uh, merchandise, but because of the fact the guy who did it, or allegedly did it, has 119 criminal convictions. Awesome work by the store owner. Heads up, called 911. We were able to get officers into the area. Literally arrested the suspect on the spot as he was walking to his home with the stolen merchandise in hand. Right. And is that because police, as soon as you saw the surveillance video, police investigators recognized him? Yeah, the owner did what we always tell people to do. Call 911. We got officers there right away, looked at the security video, recognized the guy because we've dealt with him so many times. One of the officers that, that responded right away, saw the security video, recognized the guy, knew him by name. We were able to get to his house, wait for him <laughs> to arrive home. And as I say, we arrested him on the spot. He's in jail now uh, because and charged with two uh, additional crimes um, because of the quick thinking of that store owner who called 911 and reported it to us right away. Okay. And as you mentioned, when you take a look at the, the suspect's rap sheet here, like 119 convictions, I mean, what is the public supposed to think about about that? You got a guy with, with a rap sheet that long, continues to just walk around, potentially well, committing more crimes over and over again. Well, here's the thing. This is not an anomaly. We see this all yeah. the time. These are crimes of opportunity. We see cases like this all the time. Uh, I think everybody's frustrated. Like uh, your previous guest said, uh, everybody's, uh, everybody's frustrated when we continue to hear uh, these these types of stories, and they're frustrated, rightly so. Here we have another example of a business owner uh, who's trying to make a go of it in a difficult time, uh, dealing with uh, brazen theft. Somebody who literally walks in and off the street, off the street, and in four seconds steals thousands of dollars in merchandise. Uh, people who are trying to run small businesses, people who are trying to make a go of it in a difficult time, shouldn't have to put up with that kind of stuff. We're happy that we were able to arrest this guy. We're happy that he's in jail, uh, and hopefully there'll be some consequences this time. 
Yeah, you've got a statue there or a piece of sculpture worth $30,000, and it's just sitting there on a table right near the door of this gallery, and it looked like it was a very easy matter to just walk in there, pick it up, and walk out. I mean, like you say, the store owners shouldn't have to deal with this stuff, but are you hearing more store owners taking more security precautions to try and prevent this? Yeah. Yeah, this business owner did everything right. He called us. He had security video that helped us solve the crime. Uh, more and more, we're encouraging and we're helping store owners and we're seeing store owners um, taking extra security precautions, whether it's uh, folding gates that, that go, go over their doors as the, when, when they close. It's additional security cameras. It's additional staff. It's people taking to social media when uh, to, to self-report uh, or disclose uh, images of, of people who have uh, who have shoplifted or stolen from their stores, um, and that all speaks to the level of frustration that's that's building when we continue to hear cases like this. We're getting Mike hugely underreported crime shoplifting. Uh, yeah. That said, 450 shoplifters a month are reported to us. That's 15 a day. It's up, you know, nearly 32 percent. Uh, year this uh, sorry 2022 over the previous year. So it's a continuing problem. Uh, business owners who are trying to make a go of it shouldn't have to put up with this. Uh, we're doing everything that we can. We're working with businesses to uh, to identify and apprehend offenders and hopefully have them held accountable through the justice system once we arrest them. Thank you very much for coming on today. Anytime, Mike. Thanks. All right. We've saved the best for last on the show today. Here's my question for you. What do Ryan Reynolds, Ben Affleck, Robin Williams... James Earl Jones, Donald Sutherland, and so many other big stars and celebrities have in common. They've all had a custom suit made for them by Burnaby's own Taylor to the stars. Pat Coco, 60 years in the business, still going strong. Seville Taylors and Burnaby. And I'm very pleased to welcome Pat. Pat, thanks for coming on today. Uh, Good morning. Good morning to you, Pat. You have had an absolutely amazing career. You have dressed so many famous people over the years. It's it's, uh, it's awesome. Tell me how it all began for you. How did you get your start as a tailor? Ah, well, I was uh, in the old country in Italy over there, uh, the small towns in those days after the war. There was only uh, elementary school, grade five. After that, if... Uh, uh, the parents would send you to a higher education at a town, they would. But if they didn't, you see, uh, the choice was you go to work uh, in a farm with your mom and dad, yeah. or the other choice, they would send you to learn a trade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a barber, a shoemaker, carpentry. My mother sent me to a tailor shop. <laughs> yeah, and that's... I'm still here. And you're still doing it all these years later. What was it like when you started out there in that little village in Italy? Did they have did they have snowing sewing machines there? Oh no, they had the old standard paddle machine, the old singer. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was the only thing they had. The most of uh, most of the work was done by hand. Yeah, sure, sure. You yeah. had to learn yeah. how to use a needle. I'm sure. When did you move to Canada? Nineteen. Uh, uh, 1958. 1958. And and tell me about your transition to to Canada. Like, you started working at some other tailor shops first, right, before you went out on your own. Uh, no, yeah, what happened is uh, my grandparents lived here. They came before us. So she went to a tailor shop called Olympia Tailors. 
Yeah. And she she uh, told them, look, I have a grandson coming. He's got he's a, a tailor. Do you need anybody? So he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. That was Carl Pepe. And uh, so the very next day, they brought me to his store on Hastings in Nanaimo. Yeah. So he took one look at me. He says, I need a tailor, but he's a boy. He, he, he needs special uh, immigration paper from the Labor Department that he can even uh, uh, work in part-time. How old were you? I was I was 12 years old. <laughs> 12 years old? Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, and, and I already had been in a tailor shop in Italy for two years. After grade, right. uh, grade five, you, you go to uh, learn. Wow. Okay, so you started working there 12 years old. That's incredible. Yes. That's incredible, Pat. Now, tell me about setting up on your own. Did did you start your, your first, your your own first your tailor shop be, uh, in your mom's house? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what yeah. happened in, uh, we, uh, I used to work, I was the foreman for a company called Rapeshire Clothes. And uh, 1982, the interest rate went sky high. Well, that that, uh, that killed them. So then, uh, me and a, and a few other key people from that firm, we opened up our own down downtown on uh, Camby Street. Yeah. And um, this was in 1984. So we had uh, Woodward's was our our, key, our main uh, client. There was there was like eighty five percent of our work. Yeah. So we 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 did okay for a year until Woodward's went down, and so did we. So then I started working uh, in my mother's basement. Started from scratch all over again. Wow, what a journey this has been for you. Speaking to Pat Coco, the master tailor in Burnaby, tailor to the stars. So, Pat, let's talk about some of your celebrity clients here. Like, I was just checking out your website yesterday and just clicking through all the photos of you with these big movie stars, Ryan Reynolds, Ben Affleck, you know, Robin Williams, all these big stars who come come to you to get a suit. Like, how does that happen? Do these guys, they're typically in town to shoot a movie, and they say, I'm going to go over and see Pat and get a new suit? Yeah, well, the way it works, when they make a show or a movie uh, in the industry, they hire what they call a costume designer that designs all the clothes they wear in that particular show. Yeah. So I got to know one of those many years ago. And uh, it's like a group of them here in uh, Vancouver. Uh, there's about a couple of dozen of them. And once you know one, they all talk together. Yeah. And uh, they, they send, me, send me a customer. <laughs> you know, when they, they, they make a new show, uh, they, they, they tell me, uh, we need this, this, and this. And we need it for this date. Right. What's so it? Most, mo- most of the time, they rarely ask me how much. Yeah, but, I guess you they, know, we, they can we afford deliver, it. We uh, deliver, do a good job, and we deliver on time. Yeah, no, they obviously love your work. What's what's it like to, to work for, to make a suit for some of these big stars? Like Robin Williams, what was that like? What was he like? Oh, he was, he was uh, 
quella certa e quasi finita. Sì, e lui ha fatto molti e è piacere lavorare con lui. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I know one of yeah. your career highlights was the 2010 Winter Olympics, and you made the suits for the Canadians who came into the stadium with the Olympic flag. So let's let's go back to that and play a little bit of this for you. Go down memory lane a little bit here for you, Pat. And here's what that okay. sounded like. The Olympic flag entering the stadium with the, the flag bearers wearing your suits. Here's what it sounded like. Mesdames et messieurs, l'entrée du drapeau olympique. Ladies and gentlemen, the entrance of the Olympic flag. Okay. All right, and the flag's coming in, and it was carried by, you know, I know Donald Sutherland was in there. Who else was in there, Pat? Bobby Orr, Anne-Marie Delarier, the soldier. Yeah. Uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, uh, Betty Fox. Betty Fox, uh, yes. And, yeah, and Barbara Ann something. She was a skater. Wow. What was that like to make those suits? These were beautiful white suits they were all wearing. What was that like for you to see that on TV, being watched by billions? Oh, yeah. I mean, that uh, it, made, it made me a good feeling. The whole world saw our work that night. Yeah, more than any other tailor in the world. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, ha, yeah, ha, yeah. You got a family business going. On. Your son is in the business now too, right? No, he used to be. He okay. Used to be. Okay. How long yeah, are you going? So, how long are you going to keep working? Uh, as long as my health is good and God willing, why not? <laughs> why not? Indeed. Yeah. You yeah. still you still get people. You still get the stars coming to see you. Oh yeah, yeah. We 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 making four top coats for uh, a show called Dead Boy Detective right now. Okay. Okay, Ryan yeah, Reynolds. I, I know Ryan Reynolds loves your loves your stuff. What was it like working with him? Oh, it was good. Yeah, yeah I have a picture uh, a picture on the wall here uh, with him. I have uh, on the wall wall of fame here. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of stars. <laughs> so when the new customers come, they admire the wall. Yeah. I say to them, "Look at you buy a couple of suits. I put your picture there too." <laughs> you can all be a celebrity, yeah. yeah. Hey, Pat. Pat, it's been a yeah. pleasure to talk to you today. Congratulations on all your success, and I hope you keep going strong for many, many more years to come. Thanks for coming on today. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.